Good evening. I take that music as a welcome. <laughs> I do appreciate you. I'm thankful for the invitation to be at Oldham Lane. You are very frequently in my prayers. I'm thankful for the work you do and what you stand for and ask God to always bless you. Mark Twain is one of my favorite authors. I've read his Huckleberry Finn about 10 times, I'd say. At one point, Mark Twain was a steamboat captain on the Mississippi. In his book, Life on the Mississippi, he tells about a great flood of the river that he personally witnessed. He writes, the loneliness of this solemn, stupendous flood is impressive and depressing. League after league and still league after league, it pours its chocolate tide along between its solid forest walls, its almost untenanted shores, with seldom a sail or a moving object of any kind to disturb the surface and break the monotony of the blank, watery solitude. And so the day goes, the night comes, and again the day, and still the same, night after night, and day after day, majestic, unchanging sameness of serenity, repose, tranquility, lethargy, vacancy, symbol of eternity, realization of the heaven pictured by priest and prophet, and longed for by the good and thoughtless. Mark Twain was not a believer. In this passage of his book, he's gently mocking Christians. You're good people, but really naive. The heaven you're yearning for, it'll be hell. Depressing, boring, monotonous, empty, and interminable. Mr. Twain loved his pipe. I wonder what he was smoking when he wrote that. <laughs> but I think I know where his idea came from. There's a favorite old hymn, the final stanza of which says, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing Grace was published in 1779, 104 years before the publication of Life on the Mississippi in 1883. I'm not suggesting that this hymn was the direct inspiration for Twain's messed up understanding of eternal life. I am saying that many Christians connect with his dim view of heaven because they haven't really heard what the Bible says. This summer at Oldham Lane, we are invited to unity by Paul's appeal to the church at Ephesus. There is one body, he wrote, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Obviously, the hope of our call is heaven. 
But is eternal life a hope worth living for? Sacrificing for? Even dying for? After all, we're pretty comfortable right here. We have plenty of good food, closets stuffed with clothing, air-conditioned homes and cars, money for vacations, friendship, family love, maybe sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for 10,000 years would get pretty dull. Maybe. Then again, isn't it possible that our imagination has missed the mark entirely? The Lord's answer is an emphatic yes. Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. The Apostle Peter was the leader of the original 12 disciples. This is written toward the end of his life in the A.D. 60s. Roman persecution of the church was mounting. And Peter addresses his letter to churches in Asia Minor, as we call it, modern Turkey. He says, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now I'll point out that it's a living hope as taught in this chapter because it is promised by the living word of God and guaranteed by the living son of God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In the United States, we use the expression to die for, meaning extremely good or desirable. As in, on July 4th, homemade ice cream is to die for. Actually, homemade ice cream is to die for on any day of the week. (laughs) I want to emphasize tonight that our living hope is to die for. Our living hope is to die for. In John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, which we'll read together in a moment. John 14, 1. Jesus is addressing his disciples in his final discourse before the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 14, 1 and 2, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In ancient Israel, a man built an apartment connected to his father's house. He brought his bride there. The new family lived under the father's roof. This imagery has some important implications. The father's house is not pressed for space. There are many rooms. I don't know how many people and angels will live in heaven. However, in Revelation 7 and also chapter 5, 
but we'll look first at Revelation 7, verse 9. John, in a vision on the island of Patmos, sees staggering numbers of both people and angels. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. According to our State Department, there are 195 nations in the world. In heaven, there will be a countless multitude of people from all nations and languages of the earth. And then look at chapter 5 of Revelation and verse 11. Revelation 5 verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads or ten thousands of ten thousands. That equals hundreds of millions. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Of course, 1,000 times 1,000 is a million. So he's saying there will be hundreds of millions and millions of angels. Heaven is not a majestic solitude. Imagine all the friends you'll make in heaven. Imagine all the stories you'll hear. My father died seven years ago. And he's the first person I want to see when I get to heaven. My dad loved to tell stories. I prefer to listen to stories. But my dad will have the opportunity to tell a story to one angel or person. And then go from one to another, to another for who knows how long. And they can start over. We will have so many friends in heaven, angels and people. The Father's house is not pressed for space, and in his home we will live with his Son. Let's return to John 14, and this time read verse 3. John 14 and verse 3. Jesus continues, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I don't expect a godless person to get this or even a worldly Christian. But true disciples mean it when they sing songs like, he is my everything, he is my all. And Jesus is all the world to me. If these words come from the heart, the prospect of heaven couldn't be more appealing. Heaven is the Father's house. Our living hope is to die for. Our living hope is to die for. In the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, 
verses 1 and 2. That's Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. John sees in his vision this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This promise depicts heaven as a restored garden of Eden. But wait a minute, I thought heaven was a palatial oriental house. The Father's house with room enough for all. It is. But heaven can be described only with image comparisons. We can't describe music to a person born deaf. We can't describe a rainbow to a person born blind. Words fail us. Some things have to be experienced to be understood. Heaven is like that. So the various images emphasize different aspects of life in heaven. The garden image underscores the pleasures of heaven and the satisfaction of all needs. A resort garden conjures up pictures of lovely things, leafy trees, blossoms, ripe fruit, a thick carpet of lush grass, sparkling water. But there's more than beauty in God's garden. The tree of life satisfies hunger and gives healing. It's easy to decide that God is not concerned about our suffering. We have serious troubles. We pray and pray. But where is he? He doesn't seem to listen or care. But we are mistaken. God entered our world in the person of Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He relieved suffering everywhere he went. He opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. He loosed the tongues of those who had speech impediments. He relieved pain and paralysis. He even raised the dead. His healing touch is a foreshadowing of our experience in eternity. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Revelation 21 verse 4. Revelation 21.4. It says, He will wipe away, this is God, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Imagine God as Father Gently wiping the tears from the faces of the suffering. This is the picture that John paints. The garden imagery also suggests activity. Adam and Eve lived in paradise. What did they do? Sit around all day and look at a rose bush? No. 
Genesis 2.15 tells us what they did. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Men and women are wired to work. We aren't happy if we have no meaningful tasks and no responsibility. Paul tells the Corinthians that the dead body of a saint is sown in weakness. He's comparing it to a seed. The dead body of a Christian is sown in weakness and raised in power. Think about that for a moment. A transformed, powerful body. What good is it if there are no activities putting that strength to use? Even in our present state of comparative weakness, God has enabled us to engage in countless activities that are wholesome, meaningful, pleasurable, and productive. We eat drink, sleep, make love, swim, run, jump, catch, throw, climb, paint, sing, write, speak, plant, harvest, cook, clean, invent, build, organize, lead, manage. Why of all things would God give us meaningful activity in this old broken world and then expect us to be happy forever and ever in a new realm of majestic, unchanging sameness of serenity, repose, lethargy, and vacancy? Sometimes Christians tease about what they'll eat in heaven. I'll have... Chocolate brownies with double frosting and melting ice cream. And there won't be any calories either. This is speculative, so feel free to disagree. I don't care. But what if our teasing turns out to be a reality? In Isaiah 25 and verse 6, there is a promise made by God through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has a four-chapter section, chapters 24 through 27, that is an apocalyptic vision, sort of like the book of Revelation. Isaiah 25, 6, and this is what the Bible says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He's talking about brownies with double frosting and melted ice cream. Delicious fat food. He is portraying God's blessings on us in terms of a great feast. Now look at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11. Jesus heals a servant of a Roman soldier. This soldier is very humble. Christ offers to come to his home and he says, no, I don't deserve to have you under my roof, but if you'll just say the word, even from a distance, then my servant will be well. And Jesus marveled at his faith. 
And he predicted that many Gentiles would be saved like this Roman soldier. In Matthew 8, 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not in the church. They preceded the church. They're with God. And one day, those who are in Christ will join them. And Jesus describes this eternal joy in terms of a feast. Eden restored in heaven symbolizes the satisfaction of every need and a rich supply of wholesome pleasure. Heaven is the Father's house. Heaven is the Garden of Eden. Our living hope is to die for. Our living hope is to die for. Back to Revelation, this time chapter 21, verse 10. Revelation 21 and verse 10. The he in verse 10 is the angel conducting John on this wonderful tour. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. In the image of the holy city, we see the splendor of heaven that most people associate with eternal life. The city is pure gold. Its foundations are adorned with precious jewels, sapphire, emerald, topaz, amethyst. Its gates are pearl. Its street is pure gold, transparent as glass. God is our Father. Jesus is the holy sovereign of the world. In heaven, we'll live like kings. But the main point of the heavenly city image is our protection. Notice verse 23. It says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 25, And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. In ancient cities, the gates were shut at night in order to keep the city safe from foreign invaders or raiders. They were opened in the daytime when watchmen could see from the towers and know that it was safe to keep them open. The continually open gates of heaven signify there's absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Verse 27 explains why. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. This world is an evil place, a place where innocent people are threatened, slandered, cheated, beaten, robbed, kidnapped, raped, murdered. 
my friend Johnny is a missionary in the Philippines. And he told me a few days ago about an elderly Filipina woman who is expressing her deep appreciation for America. She loves America, as almost all the Filipinos do. The Japanese treated the Filipinos like the Nazis treated the Jews. And she remembers as a little girl that Japanese soldiers came to her village and killed all the men and raped all the women and threw infants in the air and caught them on their bayonets. Detestable behavior is sick, but there won't be any moral sickness in heaven. We'll be protected from evil. We'll live in peace and joy. Heaven is the Father's house. Heaven is the Garden of Eden. Heaven is the holy city. Our living hope is to die for. Our living hope is to die for. This evening, the Lord is challenging you to receive the living hope. I want us to go back to the scripture we began with, 1 Peter 1, 3. And this time we'll add verse 4. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Born again is synonymous with saved. Jesus saves us by his grace, his mercy. In baptism, a believing sinner unites with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Our living hope is to die for, and that hope is planted firmly on the foundation of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Kerry Newhoff, in his book, Didn't See It Coming, gives us a powerful vision of what hope means to us. He writes, The cynics thought they were winning on the last Thursday of Jesus' life. They were certain they had the final word on Friday. They were in control. Despair had won. Even the disciples thought so. Nobody saw Sunday coming. Nobody saw hope rising. No one saw love breaking out from the ashes of hate. Jesus stared hate in the face and met it with love. Jesus sees your hate and meets it with love. He sees your despair and counters it with hope. Your past isn't your future. Not if you get Jesus involved. Hope cannot die if an empty tomb empowers it. Our hope 
isn't based on an emotion or a feeling. It lives in a person who beat death itself and who loves us deeply enough to go through hell to rescue us. So, what were you discouraged about again? Because hope is anchored in resurrection, it is resilient. It can outlast a hundred frustrating jobs. It can outmaneuver 10,000 broken hearts. Trust again. Hope again. Believe again. That's the hope found in Jesus Christ. We're about to sing an invitation song. If you want the living hope that's to die for, Jesus invites you to die to self and live to him and for him. If we can help you with a spiritual need, please come now while we stand and sing.